listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Some of you might recognize The Chosen. It's a pretty popular TV show. Um, They're doing a great job with it, kind of depicting Jesus in a way that just looks and sounds and feels real. You know, it's easy um, when we are so far removed from the one we, you know, worship, the one we consider to be our Lord, but it sounds almost or feels almost more like a fairy tale. And here you can kind of really see see the person. So this is a depiction out of uh, the Gospels, and it's the Gospel reading for today. We didn't read it. We kind of showed it. And it's the kind of calling of Simon. Uh, Simon Peter. What's interesting about it and the Old Testament passage that we read, well, before I get there, let me say this. Um, Jesus, they didn't quite use this phraseology in the clip, but Jesus does tell Peter that um, he'll no longer fish for fish, right? He says, I'm going to make you a fisher of people. Now, It probably doesn't take a big imagination to uh, realize that in the ancient world, uh, there wasn't a lot of recreational fishing. When you fished, you fished for a living, and you fished in order to eat the fish, or at the very least, to sell the fish to someone else, or to trade it in order to get some grain or to get something done. And so pretty much every fish who was ever caught, what happened to it? That's not a rhetorical question. Every fish that was ever caught in the ancient world, what happened to it? Yeah, it died. It got eaten, right? So now, now let's carry that metaphor through a little bit. Jesus says to Simon, I'm going to make you fish for people. But what happens to the people that have been fished for? So it's, you, this is actually not an uncommon metaphor in the Old Testament. The Hebrew prophets will often use this language of the Israel being, or the Hebrews, kind of being fished, being collected. And it is always bad news, right? Because to be caught is to be killed. And um, the imagery that gets used by the prophets is consistently that. So you don't want to be caught because you don't want to die. Um, When Amos uses the language, One of the things that the Assyrians would do if they captured a group of people and they were trying to move now these kind of slaves, these prisoners of war, they would put rings through their noses and then they would connect the rings one to another so that you could could lead a whole bunch of people pretty easily. You just take your chain and jerk on it. And so everybody's going to come because they're attached. They've, They've been hooked. And what Amos says is, the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to so devastate Israel that they're going to run out of their hooks that they typically take slaves with and they're going to have to start using fish hooks. Now, come fast forward. When there's Jesus, he says, hey, cast your net in. And I love, I love the way the clip did this. Peter's like, Rabbi. I'm a fisherman. You're a preacher. Like, won't you preach and let me fish, right? 
I'm sure a lot of you probably feel that way about me, right? If I tried to give you some advice in your life or job, you're like, hmm, this ain't the Bible, right? <laughs> this is life. You let us do this, and we'll let you do whatever it is you're doing on Sunday. He's like, Rabbi. And Jesus doesn't say a word. He's like. And so Peter's like. And so they put it in. And then, boom, all those fish are there. And that's, it's a pretty long scene, I guess, right? Them trying to wrestle all those fish in. But when they finally do get them all in and Peter gets to the shore, his response to Jesus is exactly like Isaiah's response to his vision of God. And I think it's one of the things that ties these two texts together, the text that we read and the text that we watched. That is, both Peter falls on his knees and he says, Lamb of God, depart from me. I'm a sinner. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I really am. I'm, I'm in no way a person that you would want to have in your group. And that's exactly what Isaiah says when he has a vision it says it's the year that the king has died, right? Things are bad. Uh, Uzziah was a good king. What do we do when bad things happen in our lives, right? We get a bad diagnosis. There's some kind of trauma. Uh, we go through some kind of struggle, and it's time to pray, right? It's time to go to church. That's exactly what Isaiah does. He comes to the temple at a time uh, where things are tough, and he has this vision of God. And... The Lord is high and lifted is up, and his train fills the temples, and the angels are singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and live in a people of unclean lips. His response is exactly like Peter's. And I think if we ever really got an epiphany, right, this is, this is the season of Epiphany. If we really got a revelation of kind of who God is, we would realize also who we are, and our response might be like Peter's and Isaiah's, like, Holy One, depart from me. Like, we shouldn't mix. <laughs> like, this ain't going to be good. And that's exactly what he does. But in, in that story, um, well, again, I'm, let me back up again. I'm, I apologize. With Jesus... When he says to Peter, I'm going to make you a fisher of people, we have to think that somehow that's different than the destruction and the violent way in which the metaphor had always previously been used. Because it's Jesus. If you're being caught by Jesus, it's not to eat you. <laughs> if you're being caught by Jesus, it's not to end your life, right? If you're being caught by Jesus, it's to kind of save your life. So we might go as far to say that Jesus, the ministry of Jesus that he turns his disciples into, a fisher of people, is like the first catch and release kind of program that we've ever had. Thanks for laughing. Um, yeah, because they're not consumed. They're released back into the lake, right? They're back into the sea, and, and they're back in the sea to tell other people, hey, I got caught, but they let me go, Right? I got caught by a new kind of fisher, right? I got caught by someone who's different than all the others. There's a, there's a different way of now us imagining what life is that we couldn't have had had we not had that experience. 
And I think that's always what a true epiphany, a true encounter with God is like. It's going to take you from what you think it will. First, it's going to reveal to you who you really are. Like Augustine says to his congregation, right, behold what you are when you come to the table, but become what you receive. It's going to give you an epiphany, a revelation of both who you are. It's going to do the same thing. It's going to let you see a bit more of who God is. But then it's going to transform you into a new way of being in the world. And that's exactly, of course, what happens for Isaiah. Now, back to Isaiah. So God says, I need someone to go tell others, right? Whom shall I send? It's the same thing that's happened with Peter, right? Peter's being moved from a fisherman to an apostle, right? He's on the move. And same thing with Isaiah. He's being moved from a priest now to a prophet. He's the one that's going to go represent God. And so there's Isaiah, and he volunteers. He's like, here I am, Lord, send me. And what does God say to him? That they'll have eyes they can't see and ears they can't hear and a heart that won't understand, and they won't be saved. You realize how bizarre and, and discouraging that word of the Lord is to Isaiah? I mean, what if he said that to Peter? I'm going to make you a fisher of people, but you really won't ever catch anybody. Right? He says to Isaiah, they'll have eyes, but they won't see you as a prophet. They have ears, but they won't listen to what you have to say. They have hearts, but they won't be changed. Their minds won't be converted. Thanks? Like, what's the right response to that? Like, I don't know how any of us might respond to that same message. Whom shall I send? I'll volunteer, Lord. Okay, I'll send you, but you'll be useless. Is that not what it says? So Isaiah, who I think is brilliant at this point, he gives the best possible response you could possibly give. He says, how long, O Lord? How long will it be like that? I think a lot of us would like to say thanks, but no thanks. Or why did you call me in the first place? Or we'd like to bow out, right? But then again, I think if you're actually having a revelation of the Ancient of Days, of the Holy of Holies, you, you might speak with a little more reference, you know? You'd stand up straight and you think, okay, okay, what should I say now? So he says, how long, O Lord? And God's response, I mean, at first it sounds like it's not too bad. He's like... He had said that all of that, you know, about, you know, Isaiah's ministry being utterly ineffective. But then he said, there's a remnant. It's a wonderful phrase there. It's like a, it's like a verse and a half. Like, there'll be some who listen. <laughs> there'll be some who are affected, right? And, and, of course, now, when I was growing up, it seemed like half the youth groups in town were all named the remnant, <laughs> Right, there was some, it was a good name for this group, you know, the small group. But then, before you have a chance to take a breath, he says, and then the remnant will be utterly destroyed, and there'll be nothing left, and there'll be nothing but one big stump. But then it, yeah, yeah, cool, cool, yeah. But then it ends with perhaps one of the most obscure phrases in all of Scripture. And this is the end of the story, by the way. It says, but there is a seed in the stump. Thank you. All right, we're going to pray now. Come to the table. No, I'm just kidding. We'll talk a little more. Like, that's, that's obscure. I don't know about the rest of you, but that's always struck me as like a riddle. Like, I'm, I'm going to send you... It's not going to matter. 
Well, it mattered for a little bit, but then not at all. And then there's a seed in the stump. In the very next, in the very next chapter, Isaiah starts his ministry. He becomes a prophet. And he speaks to the king Ahaz. And Ahaz has it together, man. Ahaz is like an administrator. Like he knows how to lead. And he has negotiated with the Assyrians, the largest, like the world power. And he's made a place for Israel. And the smaller kingdom, or for Judah, technically, um, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria had thought that they were accomplished enough that they could take Assyria on, the larger one. Ahaz knew better than that. And, and they came to town and said, look, you either join us to fight the superpower or we're going to take you out first. And he's like, thanks, but no thanks. I've got a good, good treaty here with the most powerful people in the world. And Isaiah rolls in, Put that right? Down. Isaiah rolls in. The, the prophet who's not going to be a prophet, you know, the one who's not going to work very well, <laughs> that guy, he rolls in. And the king's like, what are you here for? And he's, I'm here to prophesy. <laughs> and he goes, okay, what do you got to say? And he said, God's going to take care of you. And he's like, well, I've already got it worked out, but I need to prophesy anyway. He goes, okay, say something. And he said, well, uh, a baby's going to be born to a young lady. And before he's old enough to know right from wrong, oh, oh wait, wait, a baby's going to be born to a young lady. He's going to eat cottage cheese. And before he's old enough to know his left from his right, God will have provided for you. And the king's like, thank you? <laughs> like, Isaiah speaks to the king kind of like God spoke to Ahaz, like in a riddle. Like, there's a seed in the stump. Okay. There's a man by the pool with a hat on. And a duck walks across the road. Like, what, what are the prophets saying? Like, what, what, could, what could this possibly mean? But here's the point. I think what's going on in Isaiah is this. Certainly Ahaz represents that generation that has eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, and a heart that won't understand. Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, is one of the godliest of all the kings of Judah. He leads a revival, but it's very short-lived. I think uh, Hezekiah's generation represents the remnant. It's a small group. It's not the full kingdom, just the southern kingdom, right? And they make it for a bit, but then they too kind of peter out. But then the rest of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, aren't speaking to Isaiah's contemporaries. They're not even speaking to people who have been born yet. They're speaking to the um, Israelites who will be taken into captivity into Babylon. And it's a message of promise. It's prepare the way of the Lord. A voice is heard crying in the wilderness, make my path straight. It's about a suffering servant who's by his stripes were healed and our chastisement of our sins are upon him. It's about one who says the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bind up the brokenhearted, to give sight to the blind, to to liberty to the captive, right? All of those texts are texts to the people not yet born in Isaiah's time who will live in an utterly destroyed place. The stump, I think, represents the destruction of Israel. And the seed that's there represents at least initially that people who and that promise that kind of come out of it. 
So in some ways, I think it represents those who are taken into exile and will one day come back and come kind of what we now call Second Temple Judaism, right? The second take as to what happens. But in other ways, I think it, it represents one particular representative of that group, that man of sorrows, that one on whom the chastisements of our sins will be placed, the one on whom the Spirit will be poured out and he will proclaim the, the liberty of the Lord. That is, that that seed turns out to be nothing other than Jesus. And it's a seed then that is placed in our lives. But here's the kicker, friends. The seed in the stump is a long game. And I mean a long game. And I really feel like, and this has been stirring in me for a few days now, and I talked about it on Wednesday night, and we were chatting about it on Thursday morning in our breakfast group, and I've been texting people about it. This is where I think we find ourselves. We're in the midst of this long game, and we, we are anxious to get delivered, right? We, we need some kind of resolution. But there, there's something that we need to, we need an epiphany, a revelation, so that we can buckle down and hold on. Because this deliverance, this seed in the stump, didn't come in Isaiah's generation. It didn't come in the generation after Isaiah that was in exile. It didn't come in the generation after that that came back from the exile. It didn't come in the generation after that or the generation after that. Which is why by the time we get to Peter and Jesus is standing on the seashore, right, the Zebedee, he, he wasn't called by name, but when he says, I call you two, James and John, and they look over at the other guy and he says, don't worry about it. I'll sell the fish. I'll pay off Peter's debt. And he's like, what will you tell Ema, meaning mom, all right? He's like, what are you going to tell mom? He goes, what do you mean what am I going to tell mom? That you're going to come home to dinner? The one we've been praying for all our lives is standing in front of you. The one we've been praying for all our lives is standing in front of us. We come to his table every day. Every Sunday we come. And we do it because we're playing the long game. Um, Dua Lipa, who I don't actually know, uh, but apparently she's uh, quasi-famous, or maybe famous-famous, I'm not sure, singer and artist and dancer, I don't know. She's very articulate. So I saw this clip, and she was on uh, The Late Show with Steve Colbert. And uh, apparently one of the things she's doing now is that she has this podcast. And so he asked her, do you like interviewing people? Because most of her life, she would have been interviewed. Most of her life. She's like 26. <laughs> so she, she's like, yeah, I do. I do like interviewing people. And he goes, well, interview me. And it, I'm telling you, it does not look like it's in any way rehearsed. I mean, maybe it was, but it didn't look like it was. He's like, interview me. And she thinks for a second, and she goes, okay. And she poses this question to, to Colbert. She's like, I know that you're very kind of public about your faith. Like, you talk about it a good bit. And obviously, you're a successful comedian. And to what extent does your faith and your comedy overlap? Like, is there an effect on one or the other? And, you know, he said funny things like, he's, he's Christian. Uh, Catholic, to be more exact, Irish Catholic, to be even more exact. And uh, 
he's like, well, as a Christian, I definitely think uh, kind of faith is the most important thing, and I think it will win out in the end. Like, in the end, that's what it's all about. (laughs) But he says, in the meantime, we have to find ways to be faithful. And he's talking about that same long game, right? He's talking about that same promise of a seed in the stump that takes literally like 600 years to be fulfilled. Think about that. And then he quotes, he quotes a, a poet. I, I grabbed it here. So he's, he's quoting uh, Robert Hayden. Hayden says this, We must not be frightened nor conjoled into accepting evil as a deliverance from evil. We must go on struggling to be human. Think about that. We must go on struggling to be human, though monsters of abstraction police and threaten us. The monsters of abstraction are all around us. They're constantly telling us that if you don't do it, it won't happen. Like, you can't go with them, and you can't associate there. And There's, there's all of these pressures in our lives that will, will conjole us to participate in some kind of evil, right? So we're on the workplace, and, and we don't want to associate with some because we realize that they're that they're kind of on the outs with the leadership, and so we, we disassociate. Or we do that in our neighborhoods, or we do that in terms of politics, or we do that in terms of religion, right? We do it in so many ways. We do it in terms of gender, or in terms of race, and, and all sorts of things. And, and friends, Colbert was exactly right, as was Hayden, that we have to struggle, continue to be human. And I know that that idea of struggle or effort might smack against what you've been taught in regards to, you know, this is a message of grace, not of works, and so therefore you just have to receive. All of that, of course, is true, but we're missing the point. As Dallas Willard said, he said, grace is not opposed to effort, which is action. It's opposed to earning, which is attitude. Yeah, yeah, Willard's great, right? Yeah, grace is not opposed to effort, which is action. We actually do participate in Christ. Like, Paul talks about it all the time. Participation in Christ is like quintessential Christian activity. And to be Christian is to be active. It's a thing we do. It's not just a thing that happens to us, right? Where grace is opposed is to the idea of earning that somehow you think because of your action, your effort, that you've earned this place. You haven't earned it. It's a free gift. But the free gift calls us to participate, right, our action. Um, Eugene Peterson wrote this book a number of years ago, 20, 25 years ago, on discipleship, and it's called, he titled it, um, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Now, that's actually a quote, interesting enough, from Frederick Nietzsche. <laughs> um, and Nietzsche had, had his own epiphany, I think, there that the way the human life works is that we commit to something, and you don't commit to it for you know, five minutes or to a day or to a week. You commit to it for your life. Like, there's a lot of things we do here on Sundays that we don't always talk about, but our Sunday morning services are in two main sections, the ministry of the Word and the ministry of the table. In the ministry of the Word, we read Scripture, and we sing, and we uh, pray, and we hear a sermon. 
And then in the ministry of the table, we share grace and peace, we receive communion, and we give of our offerings. Those two sections, the ministry of the word, the ministry of the table, are the things that we do over and over and over and over and over and over. And there's other things, of course, that we do throughout the week. We've got Bible studies, and we've got kids' things, and we've got youth things, and we've got some small groups. But all of this is designed to be part of a long game. There's a, the, Christians from generations ago, like centuries ago, used to make a vow of stability. Like, I'm going to stay here until God calls me elsewhere. And then they would commit one to another. Because the long game is something impossible to obtain by ourselves. The long game is something we can do, though, together. It's a long obedience in the same direction. So you come and you hear those scriptures. And you're like, man, they read a lot of scriptures to that church. Well, just keep coming. You come and you receive communion. Man, they, take, they, they receive communion more than that church, any church I've ever been to. Just keep coming. Just keep receiving communion. Because every time you're receiving that communion, the, the, the forgiveness of God is being tangibly placed in your hands. The body of Christ, which is broken for you, take and eat. The blood of Christ, which is shed for you, take and drink. And if you do that over and over and over and over, it will, in the long game, shape you. And I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's not going to be something that you can just do and, wow, it's over. Ooh, I'm glad we can move on to something else. It's like this. It's like, give me a decade. Give me two decades. I look around the room and I see folks that are doing on their third and fourth and maybe even fifth decade. And trust me, that's how we become like Christ. It's in the long, long, long game because that's the way God works. He is slow. <laughs> One of my favorite poets, he's now 100 years old. His name's Killian MacDonald. Uh, he's a Benedictine monk. He's a theologian. And he started writing poetry in his 80s, <laughs> which to me sounds a little old to be starting things. But who am I? Guys, guys, in his 80s, he starts writing poetry. Since then, he's published three books, maybe four now, on poetry. One is titled, Swift Lord, You Are Not. <laughs> it is so good. Father uh, Killian gets it. And I think in some way this week, in some moment along the way, I got it, or at least I caught a glimpse of it. And I've done my best this morning to try and share some of that glimpse with you. And I've been praying for you. And, my, and I'm going to keep praying for you. Because in this season of epiphany, if you could receive this epiphany, that the seed is in the stump, right? It might look like everything is destroyed. It might look like your life has utterly fallen apart. It might look like things couldn't possibly get any worse. And I'm here to tell you, there is a seed in the stump. And maybe it will be your grandchildren's grandchildren that actually benefit from it. I don't know. But your long obedience in the same direction will count. It will matter. It's like, you know, this is Black History Month. 
It's not a church it's not a church event, it's a national event, but it's an important national event, I think. And in Black History Month, one of the people who uh, have really led our country is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And one of the things that he often said that gets quoted is, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. King's statement about the arc of the universe being long, but bending toward justice is pretty much what I think Isaiah is saying when he says the seed in the stump. It's pretty much the same thing that, um, that Eugene Peterson was saying when he says discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. Mikkel told me this week uh, that uh, Jackie Chan, Jackie Chan, is that right? He's, he's the uh, Kung Fu specialist? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He says there's no reason to fear a person who's done 10,000 kicks one time each. But if you're up against someone who's done one kick 10,000 times, that's a different story. Right? Malcolm Gladwell kind of popularized the concept that you don't become an expert at something until you've done it at least 10,000 hours. Well, how many hours have we spent at the table? How many hours have we spent in church? It just takes time. But trust me. Don't just trust me, trust the scriptures. That when God has called us to be fishers of people, look, discipleship, as, as I was trying to say with Willard, that grace is not opposed to action, um, but grace is opposed to earning. Discipleship doesn't begin with you doing something. Discipleship begins with God calling you. That's where it began. It didn't begin because Simon was out there fishing. It didn't begin because Simon kind of tried to seek Jesus out. It began with Jesus saying to Simon, follow me. Same with Isaiah, right? God reveals. God is the one who acts. But here's the thing, friends. God's acting. God's acting in your life in the very way that you're here today. May, May your presence here today, may you realize that God is working in your life and he's calling you to be a disciple. He's calling you to be the prophet, the fisher of people. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.